Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Scraps. I say it all the time, but we'll do it over and over again. This is your podcast where we explore the stories of brilliance in science and innovation. As always, thanks for all the love, especially in the last week, where a number of you have reached out to me over LinkedIn and Twitter to give us positive feedback. We are especially thankful for all the scientists and engineers in Europe who have come out of the woodwork to reach out to us. Scraps is about the stories of talented people. Talent and creativity in our minds are a result of exposure and careful crafting of the rough edges. Both of these concepts can be learned and honed. This week, we are going to dwell deeper into the talent discussion. Many of you have heard or even been exposed to the biodesign principles pioneered at the Stanford University. While that program covers all aspects of medical technology, design and development, and the book that they've published from the biodesign program is a wonderful repository of information. As the field of neuromodulation emerges from being a fringe concept to a more mainstream area, Jojo and I, through our experience, know that talented personnel are hard to come by. We are going to focus on one such effort today, which was launched last year in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Although the designers of the effort may not have planned to have started this amazing effort during the peak of the pandemic, we have some amazing stories to share with you, our listeners. More importantly, we believe that this interview and the next, which will be part two of the two-part series that we'll do on this, will let you know about this amazing opportunities that is available for young and as well as slightly more accomplished scientists. So I think it's enough that I've spent the time talking about this program in ambiguous terms. We have invited Andy Cornwell who is the co-designer of the Cleveland Neurodesign Innovation Fellowship, who designed this program along with John Sakai at the Cleveland Clinic to tell us a bit more about the program. In part two, we will interview the Neurodesign Fellows for a spontaneous interview so that they can share their experiences. As always, we played an interesting game here on Scraps. The designers, who you'll hear from today, had no idea of what we were going to ask the fellows and vice versa. So you, the listener, will be the judge of alignment in views and what people who run the program and the ones who go through the program experience. So let's welcome Andy Cornwell. Thanks, Andy, for joining us. Uh, wonderful to have you here. Can you actually walk us through how Case Western became the hub of neurotechnology uh, from the late 60s onwards and what prompted the from there to the design of of the neurodesign program here um. <laughs> how much time do we have Arun? the uh the i mean there were two kind of separate things that were happening at case in the 60s one was a design of an external pneumatic arm for people who were paralyzed and that design um it was slowly recognized that the pneumatic actuators on that arm would be better replaced if we could just stimulate the paralyzed muscles directly. So we started that project. We, 
um, in, and this was in sort of the early 70s. And then simultaneously, Tom Mortimer was finishing his research on spinal cord stimulation at that time and published that seminal work in 1967 or 68. And um, so there was, there was work that was being done on stimulating paralyzed muscles and work that was being done on stimulating the spinal cord. And both of those then evolved into much more fundamental research about stimulating nerves and how to release neurotransmitters from electrical activation of nerves, which, you know, is kind of how case trained graduates think about um, electrical stimulation. Fantastic. So from there to the neurodesign program, I mean, can you tell us about the, the thinking process behind the creation of such a program, the motivations for it, et cetera? Yeah, it was tacos and beer. That's how all great ideas start. Not and, a bad way to start. Um, so my colleague, John Sakai at the Cleveland Clinic and I were having tacos and beer and we were expressing a desire at that time. This was a couple of years ago to have a closer clinical connection for our um, existing biodesign graduate programs at Case. And John was saying, oh, that's really interesting because we're looking to have a more didactic connection for our clinical um, education programs to help them stand stand out, you know, the f- when we're recruiting fellows into the Neurological Institute. I said, well, <laughs> there's a lot of synergy here. So um, that was the genesis of that idea. And so we uh, pulled together some money from Case and some money from the Cleveland Clinic and some uh, philanthropic help and put together the first first episode of, of the Neurodesign Innovation Fellowship. So Cleveland, actually, let's let's go back and grab sort of all of the assets that are in Cleveland to support the neurotech community. And if you go through through our podcast, you can see a lot of close connections to Case Western Reserve University and the Cleveland community. And I think it's basically because you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a Cleveland grad or a Cleveland professor or or somebody affiliated with the area. What what are the assets that you guys have there? A lot of dead cats. Um, we have, so I think, okay, the, we, we do endorse safe treatment of animals just, just I, so yeah, everybody does stop. Edit, right? We're going to edit, we're going to edit the cat comment. Probably um, not. No. Probably not. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the, the core of, I think where this comes from is a solid education. The graduate program in neural engineering at case has, you know, continues to be, um, a really solid uh, theoretical foundation into electrical stimulation and, you know, targeted release of neurotransmitters. And then you layer on top of that sort of um, amazing clinical access. So, you know, when you're standing on campus at Case, um, you can walk half a mile to the east and be at the Cleveland Clinic and walk half a mile to the south and be at the Lewis Stokes uh, VA and half a mile to the west and be at university hospitals in Cleveland. So three major academic medical centers surround the campus. Um, Metro Health Medical Center is right down the road. It's a level one trauma center. And um, so spinal cord injury research and TBI research is. And so it's the connection between the engineering and the clinical side that has made I think that has made our program so successful over time is really emphasizing 
that close collaboration between a scientist engineer and a scientist physician to match the clinical need with uh, with uh, you know a technology solution. And now you're going to add to that through the neurodesign program a, a strong business foundation to to make that case for or to bring devices to to market. Or well, it doesn't have to be a device, does it? It doesn't have to be a device. So what we the neurodesign program provides a certain set of um, you know access for the fellows, and that access tends to be so the clinical access is all in neurological spaces, neuro ICU, neurological operating rooms, um, you know, various motor disorders clinics and that kind of thing. And then on the academic side, that research is fairly heavily device focused. So, you know, those are the resources we bring to the fellows, but if they came up with um, a diagnostic solution or a pharmaceutical solution, you know, we're not, we're not against that in any way. We just, uh, the resources we have available to help them bring that forward are that's great, Andy. Thanks for sharing that. So the first cohort was was recruited to start in in the summer or the fall of 2020. Uh, and you folks kind of recruited people right through the peak of the COVID kind of lockdown uh, in the United States there. Can you just tell us a bit more about the structure of the program and what do you expect the the fellows to assimilate during the various stages of the time that they spend with you on the fellowship? First of all, I'm the designer of the program in the way that my son is a designer of art when he traces over, you know, uh, we, we copied this program straight from Stanford's biodesign program. We've had a lot of really great support from Gordon Saul and that group at Stanford um, one of our executive advisors is Michael Ackerman, who is a case graduate and a biodesign Stanford biodesign graduate. You know that program is successful, and we're just applying our expertise in neurotechnology to that model. And the model is basically a sort of a three-phase educational process. The first phase is a complete clinical immersion that happened for us at the Cleveland Clinic in the clinical spaces at the Neurological Institute. You, you know, neurological surgery, um, neurology, neuro ICU, neuro rehab were all, and the fellows were their bright and early first first case in the operating room until late in the day in the rehab spaces. So these were, you know, 10, 12 hour days for the first three months of the program. And they came up with nearly 500 clinical needs that they identified in that first phase. Then the program shifts to the second phase, which is to identify the clinical need and start thinking about a solution. So they took those 500 clinical needs and developed what I would say is a pretty, they had a, they started with a very rigorous sort of breakdown process. And then they sort of implemented um, various kinds of research that they had available. They narrowed their needs down to four by um, sort of the start of the new year. And then they started inventing solutions to those things. So now, and right now they're in the process of building prototypes and they have um, a couple of very interesting solutions, a very, uh, I should say, they have a couple of very interesting prototypes um, as solutions. And in fact, they've, they've dropped two needs in the prototyping process, which is expected that, you know, things were just less feasible than they thought or not as interesting. And now that they sort of have a sense of where the technical risks remain. They, they at least know the scope of those. Uh, they're starting to build the business model 
that would enable them to deliver those solutions to the market. And that's the final phase of the program. So from the student side, what is their motivation for being in the program? What are they going to walk away with? Yeah, well, I hope they're going to walk away with a soup to nuts understanding of medical device commercialization from a needs first point of view. If you're starting in a university setting, you're in a way um, fortunate to be sitting on some pile of university intellectual property that you can apply to different areas. That has its um, advantages and disadvantages. The difference and that, you know, so that is what I refer to as a technology push. Like you have some technology and you're trying to push it out. That's the hammer looking for nails concept, but the, which is fine and it works uh, reasonably well, but the biodesign process really trains people to carefully think about clinical needs and then design specific solutions to those needs. So that's more of a technology pull. And so you're, it can be a much more efficient way of, you know, bringing changes to healthcare. So what I think the graduates will get is a soup to nuts understanding of that process, right? So that's, that's why we walk them through this. Um, we, they are responsible for their education in many ways through this, but they're, they're learning. Um, they have lectures every week on the didactic uh, pieces of biodesign. Um, we set them up with uh, interviews with our advisory faculty for each phase. So as they're going through the regulatory process, we've set them up with people at FDA. Um, when they're going through the reimbursement process, we have them talk to various payers from different um, uh, payer organizations across the country. So all these different resources to help them think through their process. And when they're done, they'll I, I mean, ideally, they would have a company to start. That's not the goal of the project. The, the goal of the program is this educational process. So now they can take their knowledge of the biodesign process and apply it, you know, as a venture capitalist or as a startup entrepreneur or as a, you know, research principal in a strategic company or wherever they end up. One of our guys is going back, you know, he's a surgeon, a neurosurgery fellow, and he's going back to finish his neurosurgery residency, but he's going to take that biodesign knowledge into a surgical practice, which will, and you know, he wants to be able to improve neurosurgery through advancing technologies and he'll be able to do that there. So one other question on this specific cohort, since you mentioned the the neurosurgeon fellow, um, you also have an unusual situation that I, I think we should highlight, especially since it's international women's month. Um, it, you have a unique situation. You had a, a, a candidate who was ideal and then boom, not just COVID. Not just COVID. Not nope. Just she uh, was um, uh, she was pregnant over the summer and had her first child right about the time that we were going to start the program. Um, so, you, you know, it was right in the phase of the clinical immersion. And we thought, well, <laughs> this is kind of like at first, we thought, she, you know, there's no way you can do the program effectively this way. And then we thought about it. And we said, no, this is exactly the sort of thing, you know, that we need to be working to overcome. So let's go back and work with the other, you know, work with, the, with, with our other partners at the Cleveland Clinic and find a way that she can still be um, a, an integral part of the fellowship, um, you know, while having her maternity leave because we, you know, obviously that wasn't something we expected her to give up. 
so we found a solution. She was able to, the, the um, other three members of the cohort went into the clinic every day. And at the end of the day, they had sort of an hour long debrief and she served as a, sort of a sounding board and helped them untangle uh, their clinical observations and really turn their clinical observations into clinical needs. And so, you know, she was intimately involved every day for a smaller period of time, but I think played a really crucial role in helping the team, uh, you know, come up with, with the number of clinical needs that they ended up arriving at. Yeah, and I think that's extremely important because I think you folks have figured out a way in which you can be agile and you can also be flexible in terms of accommodating a mother um, and also using the abilities of, of the person to ultimately get value to the system that you're building. I think I think we, we will definitely gather more as we kind of talk to the candidates here as well. So you touched a bit on the advisors, you touched a bit on the didactic kind of learning that they have in terms of coursework, et cetera, Andy. Can you just tell us a bit more about the overall mentorship and potentially other types of of help that you provide that is very distinct uh, to the uh, to, to this type of a program compared to being in a graduate school. Highlight to us um, the differences and also the salient features of how you're actually tackling that mentorship. Yeah, so there are two pieces, kind of three pieces of mentorship that we are bringing to the fellows. The first piece is there is a curriculum-based component we have a, a member of our executive faculty, Tyler Remchisel, who is the associate dean of interprofessional education at Case. And he's meeting with the team every week to talk about leadership models and team building and um, building a high performance team. That has been incredibly valuable. Um, it, it's, a, it's a unique aspect to our program that we're very excited about, this uh, leadership training aspect and how to take a group of individuals and make the sum of their output more than they would have been able to accomplish, you know, with just the four of them. We've paired that with um, executive coaching. So we have an executive coach for each of the, each of the uh, members of the cohort um, to help them, you know, walk through their early career path and how to take advantage and sort of leverage their neurodesign experience into what they want to do as a career. And then finally, each of the um, members of the team has a one-on-one mentor with a member of the executive faculty. And we're helping the team members with, um, you know, we're reaching out to our networks as, as they are thinking about what's next for them and helping them find jobs and think through, um, you know, kind of how to process some of the information that the executive coach is giving them. So they have a, a lot of support and a lot of, um, uh, they do have a lot of mentorship, I think. The team building aspect, that that team coaching and team building thing, we realized a little late in the process how how critical that was. You know, the Stanford program told us, you got to have something, like they employ a psychologist for their team. We were like, oh, right. Like if the team falls apart, like we're taking these four people from all over the place or sticking them in a room and expecting them to do this high performance program for super type A, super accomplished, really smart people. We're going to put them in a room and sort of expect them to 
you know, sort through the dynamics there. It's like, that's not fair. So it's the big brother of neuro design with, with, I, w- with I was going to ask when you're selling the rights to CBS for the next reality show. Oh, that's a good idea. That's <laughs> See, I bring the non-engineering perspective to things sometimes. So what's, what's, what's the timeline of this group? And then tell us about how you're going to select the next group. This group is finishing their program at the end of May. And um, they'll, they'll wrap up their experience then. Um, and then we're recruiting right now. The applications are open for the 2021 Neurodesign cohort. And if you go to clevelandneurodesign.org, you can find all the information, the application for that. And uh, we're going to start that program right around September 1st. And what type of, I mean, is it all going to be just biomed engineering students? What kind of applicants are you looking for? Where do they come from? We're looking for people who are passionate about uh, translation and innovation in healthcare. That's the first priority is that they're passionate about innovation. The second thing is that we're trying to pick the team to fit a pretty wide spectrum of skills. It's, we're, you know, we're not looking for a specific sort of phenotype of one person, but we need a bunch of stuff on hand. Uh, we need somebody who uh, has some experience doing, you know, research like to look through clinical literature and understand those papers and where to find them. You need somebody who has some clinical experience in one way or another is very helpful. Somebody who has prototyping experience, someone who, you know, is a kind of a maker, tinkerer, the, the guy you lock in the garage and he builds a helicopter out of spare parts. Those, that person is a very, very effective person on a team like this. Um, we need, um, you know, people who have had experience looking at market research reports and understanding how to, how to read those and where to find them. Um, people who can read patent claims and that kind of stuff. So it's a variety of skills that we're trying to match and different people bring different sets of skills to the table. And we're, we, we match the team to, to round out that set. So what's the ideal uh, cohort size and are you, how are you going to grow the program? We like each team. Uh, we like to be four members. If you have three, sometimes you get a two-on-one kind of situation and uh, five is, feels like too many. So four is a great number. It worked really well this year. We'd love to have two teams of four or more, uh, but we're limited a little bit financially by that. But hopefully in the future, we can grow into that. So we can encourage our listeners to reach out to you and, and support the program or or maybe even if if you're looking for mentors in specific area to help the teams. Yeah, absolutely. There are a couple of ways that people can help if they're interested. So if you're in the neurotechnology industry or the in the in the clinic, um, you know, doing neurotechnology, um, we're always looking for mentors and advisors for our team members. As I said, we're you know we reach out to people with specific expertise at different phases in the program, and we like to put them in touch with people all over the world, really. So that would be one wonderful way. And we are constantly looking for, um, you know, financial contributions as well. So if there's philanthropic support that people are able to provide, we'd be very grateful. That's great. When are applications due for the next cohort? April 30th. April 30th. April 30th. 30th. Not a moment too soon. No, it's a little late. Again, um, you know, we need to make sure that we have the financial commitments lined up before we commit to our team. So 
And when they come out the other side, they'll be able to add to their CVs. So our participation in, in one of the biggest communities in neurotech. I think so. I mean, if this program had been available when I graduated, I would have been thrilled, right? It's combining the amazing expertise and reputation of the Cleveland Clinic and especially their neurological institute with the educational program at Case Western, which, you know, is the nation's leading producer of neurotechnology researchers and the experience that comes from both of those places and combining those together and adding on the layer of leadership training, I think makes this a program that is um, just super valuable. We, you know, our fellows are applying for jobs all over the places and people are excited to, to see their experience and their resumes. And, um, you know, honestly, I, I think it's the right program in the right place. And I'm really excited to see where this team ends up in five years. Like I'm, I'm really excited to see what they can accomplish because it's amazing. And um, just to see the next group come and the next group come, I'm really excited for the future of the program too. That's great. Thanks, Andy, so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. Please share the love by sharing the stories you heard but more importantly, spreading the word about where you heard this information and recommending that your friends and family listen to this podcast. All interviews and soundtracks you heard belong to Scraps, a brand jointly owned by Jojo Platt and Arun Sridhar. Our soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dan, and you can find their collections on all the music apps. Remember to share this podcast. It's Scraps with a K and Sparks spelled backwards. Yeah, 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 yeah.